0: it without you the church would not exist without your will and that will was to send your son to die for a group of people and cause us to look upon him and believe in him and you would grant us that faith to do just that that he would be the one who could do the finished work and we would add nothing to it and from that, Lord, you began to gather people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And you're still doing that today. And so this morning, we give you credit for the church. We are stewards of it. We're ministers of it. We're, we're members of it. But it belongs to you. And so as we gather this morning, Father, we want to honor you through the Word, through teaching it accurately and rightly. We want to honor you with our, sing- our singing and our music. We want to honor you with our fellowship, Lord, because we would not have this, Lord, without you. And so what we do this morning is precious. So we thank you for everyone who is here, everyone who we believe was motivated by your spirit to get up and be a part of services today. We're also joined by those online who couldn't be here, Lord. And we know By your grace and by your mercy, we are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that locally assembles here at Riverbend. And we thank you. Now, Lord, take your word, pierce our hearts, cause us to be more like your son, Lord. Don't let us leave this room without becoming more transformed like your son. And Lord, if there's those who don't know you as their personal Savior, we pray today you would open their heart and plunge faith into it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 through 18, you come to some passages that are sometimes difficult to preach. (laughs) And let me tell you why sometimes they are difficult, is because when you get to passages about preachers, it can seem a little bit self serving, and I want to be clear that is not my goal here today. We are committed to expository preaching. We preach the text. That means we hold to what the text says. We don't cut around it or skip. Ooh, I don't like that passage. Let's so go on this one. We teach every verse. That's what we do. And so we come to these passages. They're quite challenging as a pastor to study. But I'm not preaching this because I need a raise or anything like that. <laughs> don't go there. We're actually looking at the ministry of Paul. And then we're applying how he lived his life, how he was so dedicated to the gospel that he would deny certain rights so that the gospel will go forward. And that's the challenge today. What do we do with Christian liberties in the glory of God? What will we give up for Christ to be glorified? Now, by way of introduction and review, because it's been a few weeks since I've been in 1 Corinthians, let me remind you that from chapter 8 through chapter 11, we've now moved into a context of Christian liberties. And, and, and really, what Paul's doing is not only in Christian liberties, but most importantly, how we use them or how we don't use them. And when we study this, the goal is, God's goal is oneness of the church. Let me tell you this. God loves oneness. He loves it in his trinity, right? He is one, father, son, and spirit. He loves it in marriage. Husband, and wife, you are now one. He never looks at you apart. And you know where he really loves it? In the church. And that's where it's sometimes most difficult. And that's why this passage is so important. Ephesians chapter 4, 3 through 7 says this. Just listen. Being diligent. I love this term. Be diligent. Work hard at this. To preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and on all. And then listen to this phrase. But each one of us is given grace according to the merit of Christ's gift. And people often see that passage and go, oh, God may give me grace to do my gifts. No, the context is that God gives you grace to be one. And the problem why is there's so much division in churches because people don't exercise that grace and they want their preferences and they want their rights and so they're not gracious and the church falls apart. Paul doesn't want that. He wants grace to drive our unity. So God desires unity. God desires unity. It's a struggle in the American church. The American church is about individualism. The American church is about independence. We've somehow brought that freedom fighting mentality that we have in this great nation with its great constitution and its great great judeo-christian base to it and we sometimes bring that into the church and there comes what we call the american dream and there's an independence but that's not what god teaches god doesn't teach that at all and this often impedes us from enjoying the oneness of god let me tell you where your marriage struggles sometimes is because you try to live separately of your spouse and God. I promise you, you're coming to my office, and I don't want you. Now, don't take that wrong. <laughs> I want you, but I don't want you coming that way. See, oneness brings you together. Oneness in Christ holds our marriages together, and it holds our church together. And we have to be willing to say, oh God, what do I need to give up for your glory and for the benefit of my marriage, my church, my relationships? See, this is what Paul's after. We find in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that Paul's addressing this issue. He wants us to understand why there are struggles And when we even got into 1 Corinthians, we find this factitious behavior where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 12, he says, now by by this I mean this, that that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of uh, Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. And there's this great factitious relationships within the church. Oh, I'm with the academic dean. I'm with the president. I mean, there's... And it can happen all kinds. Or, or this is our VFG. And this happens all the time. And that does not create the unity and the oneness God wants. And this church struggled with that, didn't it? They had fleshly desires. First Corinthians 3, 3, he says, you are still fleshly. Can you imagine writing that to the church? I wonder how they're going to take this. <laughs> You're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? meaning you're still walking like the world. You claim to be Christians. You can see there was a great problem in the church. There was unrepentant, undealt with sin within the church. That will cause great disunity. Hey, you want to live in sin and not repent of it and then come and be a part in here? But, but never, I'm not talking that we don't all have sin that we need to work on repenting of, but never deal with it, always dismiss it, always blame it on somebody else. You're going to bring disunity to the church. This is why we do church discipline. This is why we discipline ourselves. This is why we know that God lovingly disciplines us. Look what's happening in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 5 1 it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, immorality of such kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Immorality, un, un, any unconfessed, unrepentant sin that you put your foot down on the ground and you say, This is I don't care. It brings disunity. Christians were fighting against each other even to the point of lawsuits. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we find that they're suing one another. Paul says, but brothers go to the law with each, with brother. And that before unbelievers. <laughs> they're suing one another. Can you imagine some member over here and there's another member over there and they're worshiping together and tomorrow morning they're in, they're in court fighting? Do you think that's what God designed for his church? I mean, it's the farthest thing from it. See, this is what Paul's after with this church. Now, not to mention that the Corinth church had already false teachers among them. They were in in the fellowship, and they hadn't done much with that. There's other references to that. And so all these mark disunity that creates this backbiting, separating this man-centered church versus a Christ-centered church, and Paul does not want that for the Corinthians. I think he sums up his thoughts well in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I know you're jotting some of these down, and I'm still in introduction, but bear with me. Verse 20 says for I'm afraid that perhaps when I come and find you you will not be what I wish and I may be found by you not what you wish. Now that's a really that's a really important verse. Because he says, by the time I get there, after I've spent a year and a half with you, now you've turned against the teaching that I've given you. I've written you these letters to, to encourage you to walk with Christ and be uni- unified. But when I come back, I'm afraid I'm going to find this group that's super individual, is not united together, and you're not going to like what I'm coming to tell you. Well, How would you like to come to that church on Sunday morning? Oh, tell me about your church. Well, they don't get along. They don't like each other. There's a bunch of false teachers in there. There's people suing each other. And by the way, there's immorality rampant in the church. But hey, you want to come with us? See, Paul doesn't... He loves Christ. And he loves the church. And he knows this isn't good. Now, these all create disunity in the church. And and listen, they rob Christ of his glory. They rob Christ of his glory... And they they make churches joyless places, and and they make them disunified Christians. But as you turn back here to this context of 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, particularly 9, I'm going to be in here, you'll find one more, what I would call a devastating issue to the church. And it's usually an issue that is often not getting um, its highlighted emphasis. Here's the issue. Christians' freedoms, Christians' liberties. And Paul is exposing in this text that there are liberties that Christians misuse because they don't care enough about the love and the glory of Jesus Christ in one another. And so when Christians misuse their freedoms, their liberties, they don't take into account how it will affect someone else. And this will cause big problems. Remember we talked about America has this independent uh, type of thinking. That is pervasive within the church. It's pervasive across the church of America. When you talk to missionaries overseas, that's one of the things they note about us. Not, Not maybe particularly us, but as they think about the Christian church, what often comes out of this is this independentness where they're not one. They don't trust their leadership. They don't work together as one group to bring praise to God. And it's a problem. And Paul's addressing it here. So that's what this context in chapter 8 to 11 is about. And and as we detailed just a few weeks ago, we looked at 9, 1 through uh, 12 a few weeks ago. But the idea here is, don't use your liberty to exercise your flesh. And our... Liberty is, listen to this, should be limited by our love for Jesus and others. Did you catch that? Our liberty should be limited by our love for Jesus and others. We started a theme this year at the beginning that you keep hearing me talk about, love without limits. Because that causes us to, to even say, though I have a liberty... Though I have a freedom in an area, I want to deny that so that Christ will be glorified and I'll love one another. Corinth wasn't the only problem. Church of Galatia had this as well. Paul writes in Galatians 5.15, but if you bite and devour one another, just think of those words. It's it's tearing apart is the idea. The Greek word is if you're going to rip one another apart, if that's what you're going to do, take care that you are not consumed by one another. How many churches have been closed through the years that just we know about because they consumed one another? See, this destroys the usefulness of the church. That's not God's goal. And this is the principal context that Paul is teaching here. And now we know that, that this is what he wants. And when we think about the Bible, we think there's, there's instructions in the Bible um, about things that we know are clearly dead wrong in God's word, Right? There's like 10 of them. <laughs> there next is 20, uh, right? Uh, there's a lot more than that. But the Bible's very clear. These things are sinful. They're against me. And then there's things that tell us what's exactly right. This is how merit should be. This is how parenting should be. This is how you should gather together. This is how worship should be, so forth. Very, very clear. Arti- the Bible articulates great. And then there's some things that are... Are a little bit gray. They're not right or wrong. Pork or beef. The great debate between In-N-Out and Five Guys. Huge debate on the West Coast. I don't know about here. Sweet tea and unsweet tea. I mean, what are you? I mean, you're on one side or the other, right? Some of people will mix them. we we'll have to check their theology on that. See, it things God doesn't... It's not that He doesn't care. It's just... He, he has as much freedom in those things, right? These are preferences. But Christians are to live their lives as one who are not trying to work their way to salvation. I think so many things, I talk to people who are straying away from the faith or questioning whether, whether they're they Christians or not anymore or if they believe all this. Here's the common thread. Here's, here's a common thing that happens. They did all the Christian stuff because that's what they did in their culture. They never did it for Jesus. Isn't that the difference of salvation? I live my life for Jesus because of what Jesus did for me. It's that simple. Go to church. Watch your speech. Let things come out of your mouth that are godly and praiseworthy and trustworthy. I mean, all the stuff we do that people go, oh, they're just Christians, they're legalists and all that. No, no, much of that we do because we love Jesus. Is that not right? That's what Christianity is. We're Christ what? Followers. And so when somebody abandons the faith, walks away from that, often you realize it was just a game. I just did it. My parents taught it. I went to Sunday school. I grew up there. I did all those things. It never got to the heart, and I never did it for Jesus. And that's what I actually helped them put into their mouth. Just say it. You never did this for Jesus, did you? Or at least the Jesus of the Bible. Because then they start, well, I have a different Jesus. Now we're in trouble, right? Now, the exercise of our liberties God's word is telling us here that it must be done to consider members of the body of the Christ and how it affects others and in the protection of the gospel. That's the key, right? So, in the context of these chapters eight through eleven, these four chapters here, Paul is teaching us that you you may have to you may have to think about things, right? You may have to work through things. One, one person may have no problem going to the marketplace, buying, he's using this as an example, buying meat offered to pagan idols, an it. They may not have a problem at all, but there may be one, and I'm dropping into the context of first century here, there may be one who is recently saved out of that complete debauchery of that pagan cult, and this act is completely crushing to their young faith, and you say, I don't care, I want my pulled pork sandwich. you invite over a new convert who's come out of judaism or something like that it could be hard it's not that we don't teach them to help them do that but it's thinking about the young here and this is what he's doing here and 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 though biblically you may have all the freedom in the world to eat that pulled pork sandwich a christ-like love tells you to be considered or considerate of the spiritual younger brother so paul illustrates this all through chapter nine and and what he does is he uses himself as an example He's showing that he has freedoms, and he has set those aside. Notice in verse four, he said, "I have the freedom to eat and drink. I'm going to set that aside. I have the freedom to marry. I'm going to set that aside. I have the freedom to ask the church to support me. I'm going to set that aside. And he gives example after example, 11 through seven through 11 there. But notice in verse 12, Paul describes that the true servant of the Lord will choose not to hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ because of his liberties or her liberties. Now, Paul means that he'll put up with some inconveniences. You know what? I really want to sit on the end. Oh, man, I'm in trouble now. About a third of you are mad at me. But there's new people here. So I'm going to make my way in the end. Just little things sometimes. It's just little things of saying, oh, God, help me not walk in and be selfish. Help, help me contain this flesh that just wants to get out and always think of itself this is what Paul's after. And and for Paul, look, it's not only just some inconveniences. Now, as we'll see in our text today, he's talking about financial challenges that he has to overcome in order to preach the gospel without hindrance, particularly to this church. So in other words, they themselves would do everything possible. Paul, Barnabas, this group would do everything possible not to be a stumbling block. Now that brings us to... Verses 13-18 that Pastor Brian read today. And let's look at four ways how the Apostle Paul... I want us to see this and apply it to ourselves. Four ways Paul refused his own liberties, his own rights... ...in order for the gospel to be preached, the church to be strengthened... ...and his, and his Savior to be glorified. Let's look at that. Today. Number one, Paul has a right to earn his living from the proclamation of the gospel. Verses 13-14. and 14. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat of the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from that altar, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Well, in verse 11, as we just look back there a moment, Paul questions the Corinth church that even though they were supporting others, you can see that in the text, did not he and Barnabas have the same right? And in fact he had humbly proved he deserved it more than others. That's what he did in this preceding text. But as you can see in verse 12, Paul does not accept to take the right that he has. So in other words, even though he deserves this financial compensation, I mean, he, did, he worked day and night, the Bible says. I'll explain that just in a little bit. Even though he worked hard, and, and he worked hard in the ministry, that was, and he had rights given to him by God, he chose to refuse it refuse that now we saw that several weeks ago and and i gave you a verse out of second timothy chapter 2 verse 10 and the important reason why i gave you that verse to match with verse 12 13 and 14 was to show that that corinth wasn't the only church and so he told timothy this young now protege of his that he's handing the baton off to he says for this reason i endure all things for the sake of the elect second timothy two ten. Second, uh, for the sake of the elect so that So that they also may attain salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with its eternal life. So he says, I will endure all things. So here we find this same language we see in the end of verse 12. But we endure all things. Now that word endure means to bear without comment. (laughs) Just think about how we bear with things. All right, dear. I'll do that. But I don't want to. Right. Sometimes you, just can't, you can't do something without saying something, right? So, so the word here, the Greek word, means I bear something without comment. In fact, it has the idea to suffer in silence. Only Jesus knows. Only Jesus knows what I'm going through. And in fact, the verb, which is just amazing, is this present continual tense. So that means throughout Paul's ministry, he is saying, I continually choose to endure all things for the sake of the gospel. See, Paul's way of life was silent self-denial. And now, in the 2 Timothy passage, he's teaching his protege, his, his one who's going to pick up the ton, he's teaching him how to live the same way. Because it brings great glory to God. However, Paul's going to prove his argument. Now, the reason he proves his argument, you go, why is he silent? Well, he actually says it in here, we'll see this in a minute. Because there's a church that'll continue to go farther away if he doesn't prove his argument. And so God leads him, inspires him, the Spirit's pushing him along to write these verses. You know, prove his argument in a natural environment that he's in, in these following verses here. So look at verse 13 again with me. He says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat of the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So here Paul shows that he has the right to be supported by the churches, and, and he that he serves because it is a universal pattern of the priesthood of Israel. And he may even be linking to the pagan temples that are in Corinth that their priests, too, eat from the sacrifices. Now, the priests we know in the Old Testament, they performed these sacred services and they were supported by tithes of, of finances, of crops, of... of of animals, of, and even the meat that was offered was provided to them in certain sacrifices for them to sustain themselves. So that's what he's referring to. But look at verse 14. So also the Lord directs those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So here Paul shows that he has the right to be supported by this church in Corinth or the other churches that he serves so faithfully. And because it's a universal pattern in the priesthood of Israel... And in and, and, and the argument that he just developed, he says, I have the right to this financial support. God has ordained it, but I'm going to hold it off. Now, there's an interesting statement in here. Notice he says, so also the Lord directed. Uh-oh, he just brought Jesus into this thing. And you go, well, what's he talking about here? Well, he says, look. The God, the Lord, Jesus Christ, said that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from it. You go, well, where's that at? Can I find that passage somewhere, that direct quote? Well, certainly he's inspired by the Spirit. He's he's bringing things out of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know, first of all, that both the Old Testament and the New Testament confirm that the priests and the prophets, and then the New Testament, the pastors and teachers and ministers are to be paid for doing the work service. But here he seems to point to Jesus Christ affirming this. And so most theologians believe he's referring to Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And that's the passage that he sends out the 70 to go out and teach. And Jesus says this: stay in that home, eat and drink what they give you. This is this, for the labor is worthy of his wages. So Paul's even proven his point from the words of the Lord Jesus Christ here. And so the Lord commanded his people to offer support. And this is the, the main point. Here's what he's talking about, verse 14. The Lord commands people to support their ministers, those who care for them. But Paul's saying, but the minister does not, is, not, excuse me, is not commanded to accept it. And this is what Paul did. Paul chose not to. And even though he had the right, he said, I'm not going to do this. Now, for the sake of the gospel and the love of the brethren, he gladly limited his liberty in this area because he did not want to be a hindrance to these people. Now, Despite all the rights that Paul had, that he listed in the first 14 verses here, he chose to not be a hindrance. Now, this word hindrance, I talked about it a couple weeks, but let me bring it back up again. The Greek word means to cut something deep. That's pretty descriptive, isn't it? And when we find the word used in biblical materials, it comes down to uh, a military term where they would go and they would tear roads up so military could not take their, all their war machine and proceed towards them. They would rip open the roads in a way that they could not come. And this is the way Paul is using it. So Paul had the right, but nevertheless he chose not to rip open and, and impede and make impassable the weaker to come to Christ. That's what he's doing. Now you might say, why is he doing this and, and how is he doing this? Well, at least in Corinth and possibly in other places, Paul worked all night long. Think about this. He worked all night long so he could serve all day long. That's pretty impressive. Now remember, this is not a command for all pastors and teachers and missionaries not to take support. That's not what this is saying. Paul is trying to show that he will give up liberties in order to see people come to Christ. But think about what he did. Every day after long preachings, and beating sometimes because we have those lists of things that he went through for the sake of the church. He went through all of that during the day, and then at night he went back and he made tents and sewed and stuck his finger and and sweated so that he could provide for him and Barnabas and this ministry crew that was trying to come to this church that was all about disunity. And he did this because he did not want to hinder the gospel. He chose, listen to this, He chose not to be a stumbling block. I've had too many people tell me, well, Pastor, that's my right. I deserve this. Yeah, you do. Will you give it up for Jesus? It's a good question, isn't it? See, this is what Paul's teaching us here. I I have to use myself as a personal example, just maybe because I know myself more than I know anybody, so don't take it any more than that. But Gina and I started our ministry career together after we had been under our mentors for years and doing church planning. They finally sent us to do our own church plant. We landed in a little uh, valley called uh, Surprise Valley. It's up in the northeastern corner of California, touches into Nevada and, and, and southeastern Oregon there. And there we landed into a community that really had never had a biblical teaching church. It was, it was devoid of the gospel. Um, it was a very difficult place to reach people. Most people were ranchers. They, they were proud. They, they earned their own living. They raised their own food. Uh, they were hardworking, salt-of-the-earth type people. And here we come. The way God led us to reach them is... We swung a leg over the horse and started riding with them. It was the only way to get to them. They weren't coming in some building. And so we began to to ride, and I got the term, I got nicknamed the cowboy preacher because of those things. But here we are, just we're now trying to plant a new church in an unchurched area. And, and think about this way. Let me put what Paul's saying, what I think the context, what I believe the context is in Corinth. And in, in, in my life that was there if I, if I came into that valley and I led somebody to Christ and they made some kind of profession and then I turned around and said now give me money they're going to go hey <laughs> what's your motive are you trying to get a jet <laughs> right I would I mean that's what I would do See, see, there's a mission-mindedness that we lose because we don't think we're missionaries, right? We don't think that we're called to some foreign field, and we lose that. And we come into church and say, "I want good music. I want children's ministry. I don't sing this, sing that. uh, Preach this. Don't go too long." Um, (laughs) You can add a lot of other things in there. See, we're not missionary-minded. And that's what it takes. That's what Paul was. He was a missionary to Corinth. He knew it was tough. He knew it was hard. He knew there were disagreeable people. He knew the immorality was rampant. He didn't go into that blind. He went there because God sent him, brothers and sisters. And God has sent you to this serve, this church to serve. See, the unsaved people that you're trying to reach won't understand it. And, and maybe a new... Convert may in time, but at first they're not gonna get it, so you don't come up and say, Hey now, look, I've done all these things for you. Um now buy me something. See, though though we were there sent, we we began to establish our living from ranching and cowboying and that, we, that's what we brought in a portion. And then what was interesting, and I think this really relates, is God used other churches, established to mature churches that were a long ways away to say, hey, Scott, we're going to stand with you and Gina and the kids. We believe what you're doing is, is of God. God sent you there. We're mature enough to understand what you're doing, so we're going to try to fund you so you can do that. That's what we do with missionaries. <laughs> right? So we could go in there and give them the gospel and not say, oh, hey, by the way, Jesus and I are starving to death, which was happening in other cases. Um, uh, give us money. Godly people came and said, hey, we want to stand with you in this. See, this is the way we did this so we wouldn't hinder that baby group that was coming to Christ. Um, I think we just put on the Internet, on the, on the, on the, what's that tracker thing that goes across the Internet I gave a testimony in our missions, I teach in missions class in the seminary, I gave a testimony this last week or the week before um, of that ministry there, and if you're interested, you can go listen to it, it's long, it's an hour long, just of, of what, what took place and how God gave us that missionary mind to go in there, if you'd like to listen to that, that's up on the website, but, but I get this, right? Now, now what, what God did for Paul is that he raised up churches in Macedonia like Philippi and others who began to support Paul. And what I love about that is the mature grace, excuse me, from the mature church flows grace. Are we a mature church? I think after all the years of teaching we have, God's let us do amazing things. I mean, we we have schools and some great learning. We have discipleship. We we have a lot of things. And, And so we're mature, right? We should be. So we've got to act like it individually. And then as a church, we act like and say, God, how can we be a, a support to the rest of the churches around here? We're not just doing Bible's college and seminaries for us. We're doing it for any way we can help Christ's church around the world. We have a school that just isn't for our kids. They're for everyone that can come. See, that's what mature churches do. Out of, out of the maturity starts to flow grace out of our hearts. And that's why we say no to certain things. Now, throughout the New Testament... We don't see any of the, apostle, the other apostles do this. So I want to make this clear. This is, this, is not, this is not the standard way of doing something. We don't get our guys graduating from seminary and go, Hey, here's the good news. You graduated. Bad news, we're not going to pay you or do you anything. You're just going to have to go try to make it. <laughs> That's not what the Bible is teaching here. In fact, when we study it, we realize that not one other apostle spoke of these things. And it seems that they all received sport according to verse 5 and 6 and 7, right? Can we take along a believing wife just like Cephas does? Can Barnabas and I have the right to, to work, right? To make money? Can, we, can somebody take care of our expenses like a soldier? See, he's showing that that was done, that was the routine, that was how things were done in the early church, but Paul was making an exception because of Corinth. Now, throughout the entire Old Testament, the priesthood was supported behind the New Testament. The church is now commanded to pay double honor to the pastors who work hard in the word, 1 Timothy 5, 17. So look, what this is about, as I end this first point, we see here an amazing trust in God by the Apostle Paul who in no way wanted to hinder the growth of the Corinth church. And I think that should inspire all of us. You was know, Scott, I'm not a pastor. I don't care. This is written to us. How can we say, God, I don't want to hinder whether it's my children, whether it's my my aging parents, whether it's a neighbor, I don't want to hinder the gospel. Second thought Paul brings up here is, is found in verse 15. Here's the point two. Death before boasting in something that belongs only to our God and Savior. Death before boasting in something that belongs only to our God and Savior. Now notice how he starts verse 15 out. He says, I have used none of these. So all this list that we've seen in chapter 9, all these things that he he says he has the right to, he says, I've done none of these things. I've taken none of them. In other words, though I am an apostle sent by Christ himself on the road to Damascus, and it's customary for the laborer to receive worthy wages, and even the law taught that that ministering servants should be rewarded, and others have received this payment, and that it's a universal teaching between Israel and even the pagan world that people should be paid for their services. And even though Jesus himself alluded to this and ordained it, Paul says, I've done none of this. That's where he lands. And notice the next phrase. He says, I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. I I love this. Because through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul knows there's just that guy waiting to say, oh, but now you're writing to us. Oh, you didn't do all these things, but now you're writing in this letter. You better give me money. So Paul says, I'm not even writing this for that. See, people have all kinds of wrong motives. They look at people and they go, he's after something. Right? You ever have a spousal dispute over wrong motives? Of course you have. Probably on the way to the church today. (laughs) So we try to look into the heart of people, and we can't. And that's what happens. So Paul says, look, I, I know you might think this. I'm not even writing this to get anything from you. See, they would think that Paul was giving all these reasons in order to get some money. But what Paul's doing is he's avoiding the, this argument of false humility. He's trying to put it right out there. I'm not trying to be false, false humility here. I have no hidden agenda. Paul simply is saying, I'm not doing this for gain because I love Jesus, and I love you. See, this is the heart of a true shepherd, right? When you start to understand this, this is the heart of somebody who loves Jesus. It shows a true motivation. It shows that they have personal conviction in all of the preparation that you go through to live this life, whether you're a pastor and you're your studying and in counseling and doing all those things. You, you, you lay down a lot of things for that, or you're a mom or a dad who's giving up much so that their children can hear the gospel. Or whatever the case may be, you're, you're, really to, you're ready to give these things up. And I think that reflects your personal walk. How different are you in here than you are out there? See, that's a lot of what this comes down to. See, the mature church, the mature church applies financially to people. They see people who work hard in the word, and, and they reply. It's just how God said. But the mature church also understands that things, things, some people need help. Some people are immature, so we don't want to stumble them. I want you to just go back to chapter 4, because you may not understand Paul's situation as, I, as, I, as he says that, but I'm not even writing this to get this through. I want you to remind you what his present condition is. Chapter 4, verse 11, really shows this. Verse 11, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and poorly clothed, and roughly treated, and are homeless. That's rough, man. He's not only making tents, he's living in one down by the river. I mean, it's not good here, isn't it? 12, we toil and work with our own hands. We're reviled. When we're reviled, we bless. We're working, look, we are, when we're persecuted, we endure. There's that silent endurance, right? When we are slandered, we try not to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So some people look at 1 Corinthians 9 and go, hey, Paul, you know, what are you after? How about some clothes? <laughs> a hot meal. See, this is what happens when churches live independent of one another and independent of Christ. This is what goes on. So Paul says, look, our present condition is terrible, but it doesn't change our direction. Yeah, things are bad, but we're not changing direction. We have a God who knows we're poorly dressed, we're hungry, and we're going and we're being reviled. He knows all that. And so I'm not writing to you to twist your arm. I'm not not trying to get you to support me. I have a calling, and I'm willing to endure all things for the sake of the gospel. That's what he's telling us. And you go, well, this is just Corinth. No, it isn't. Acts chapter 20, verse 34, he tells the elders at Ephesus, you yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who are with me. 1 Thessalonians 2, 9. For you recall, now he's in the church of Thessalonica, brethren our labor and our hardship, how we worked. Here we go again. Night and day as so not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Second Thessalonians three eight nine. 9. Nor did we eat any man's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to anyone, not because you do not have the right of this, but in order to offer ourselves, listen to this, as a model for you so that you will follow our example. You say, Scott, why are we teaching 1 Corinthians 9? Because it's a model. It's a model for us to live our lives. So Paul would do whatever it took to help an infant church, he'd just do whatever it took. He, 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 and it wasn't just Corinth, it was, it was Thessalonica, it was Ephesus, it was other churches, so that they would blossom. He wanted them to blossom, and he didn't want to put any hindrances. He didn't want to cut up any roads in front of them. This was Paul's attitude. He did not hesitate to present this, and he, and he wasn't asking for money. He wanted to live his life for Jesus Christ, and that was his concern. So though he did not desire to ask for money for someone else, I mean, he didn't hesitate, excuse me. He he would ask for money for other churches, and for those, he, he would choose not to ask for himself. And so these infant churches, he was just mindful of their vulnerability. You see, if we look at people... Um, in that way and not, not down looking in any way, but we see people and you, and, and you have to think, I don't know everybody in this room or I don't know these people that I'm meeting for lunch or whatever it may be. You have to say, God, I don't know who they are. And please, I don't know if they're infant or they're mature or what it is, but I want to glorify you in what I say and do with these people because your, your name is the most important thing we can, we can talk about and live for. Now, later on, as the church is mature, Paul actually demands them to give ministry to the money. He does. So in no way would Paul hinder an infant church or, or infant believer here, but as the churches grow, he says, now, hey, come on, let's go. Let's run together in this. Let's go spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you might say, oh, Scott, how, how do you know this to be true? Well, look back at verse 15 with me. But I have, I have used none of these, and I'm not writing to you so that It would be done in my case. Now look at what he says here. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. Paul says, I would rather be dead than to do ministry for hire. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Paul says, I would rather die than to be seen as one who is after sordid gain. Those are Peter's words about elders. 1 Peter chapter 5. And later he says, We're not not here to peddle the gospel. He says, I'd rather die than that. (laughs) In fact, for the elders and deacon qualification, the Bible says that they must be free from a love of money. Isn't that a problem today in some of the wild churches that go on there? Buy me a jet? You're disqualified. Now, notice he makes this little phrase. This is an interesting phrase, and you have to look at it. Make my my boast an empty one. Well, so isn't boasting evil? Well, no, the Bible always says in a lot of places, if you're going to boast, boast of the Lord, right? So the word boast is an important one here. The word carries the idea of praising something or someone, but it has more the idea, now here, I want you to hear this out, of justifying boasting is what he's using. That's how he's using the word. So Paul is saying, I would rather be dead than accept praises for something I did and thus strive to justify my boasting through my own efforts. I'm not going to do that. In other words, Paul wants no boasting that they paid him for his ministry and thus rob God of his glory and make Paul's word work. And this is what he says, empty. That's not how he wants to finish. So if... If God didn't get the glory, but he got the money, that would be the most emptiest thing to, God, to Paul. I, I, I try to think through these things personally. I go, man, you put, all, you put this work, this love of scriptures and study it. It is hard and tiring, time away. You put all that in, and then all you cared about was today's offering. How empty is that? Somebody recently said they were at a church that they were trying to raise some money and they came around and the guy looked at him and said, not enough, send it back around. And he wouldn't stop preaching until they gave what he wanted. What an empty ministry. Well, this is why Paul is doing this. And we, we see that he clearly gives up his right. And this leads us to point three. Third, gospel preachers are stewards of something that does not belong to them but deserve great care. Gospel preachers are stewards of something that doesn't belong to us, but it deserves great care. Look at verse 16 with me. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. Now that seems kind of like a strange phrase, doesn't it? Shouldn't we be boasting over the gospel, right? I think we do that well here. We did this morning, singing, preaching. The boasting here is this idea of rejoicing in something. So here Paul most likely is referring to those teachers, even that ascetic group that's in Corinth, that are boasting over their own gifts and their own articulation and all their greatness that they think they are. I think that's what he's referring to here. And here's the key. I think what Paul's saying here is, I have nothing to boast about when it comes to the gospel. Now listen to this, because I had nothing to do with it. That's what he's saying. If, you're, if you want me to boast about this, I'm boasting of something I had nothing to do with. <laughs> and simply just think about this. The gospel is God's plan, laid down from the foundations of the world, fully fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and placed in our hearts by the Spirit. That's why Paul says I don't have anything to do with it. It's not mine. It's the gospel of God, the book of Mark says. So he says, I'm, I'm not under compulsion. Notice this for, for, excuse me, for I am under compulsion. Paul's telling us that it, it isn't his gospel. He, he originally had no intention to preach this, right? In fact, his intentions were what? Destroy it. Isn't that right? Where was he going in Acts 9? Damascus? What was he going to do there? Kill, imprison, do whatever he can to stop the way. So he goes, this gospel doesn't belong to me. I never, I never grew up for my first 30 years and thought I would ever preach this. All I wanted to do was stop it. Until that fateful day in Acts chapter 9, when the glory of Christ knocks him off his steed, Christ told him personally, stop persecuting me, and you're going to go be a light to the Gentiles. And everything changed. Later, Paul says... In Galatians chapter 1, 15 through 16, he says, But when God, who set me apart from the, my mother's womb, now he has a correct uh, understanding of the sovereignty of God and calling, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So, so at first, this goes, "This is not mine. This is what he's trying to say. I, his gospel isn't mine. I wanted to destroy it. But now I understand from before, time before I was in my mother's womb, God had called me to this. So Paul's saying here, if I don't do this, I'm in a lot of trouble. (laughs) This is what i got to do. And he does it with great joy. And because the Father planned salvation, Jesus Christ fulfilled the plan. Jesus Christ fulfilled the plan, the Holy Spirit implanted the plan. And all of this has compelled me to obey the plan. That's what he does. Father formed it. Son fulfilled it. Spirit implants it. We obeyed. We probably should write that down somewhere, shouldn't we? I mean, that's what we do, right? And that's what he was. So so that's why he says, notice at the end of the verse, woe is me if I do not preach this gospel. If the Father laid this down before the foundations of the world. He sent his own son to step out of heaven in all of its glory and add flesh and live on this sinful world and walk perfectly to fulfill the plan. And God sends the Holy Spirit to implant it in my life. Shouldn't I be compelled to obey it? And that means obeying it in the pew, in the home, in the pulpit. He says, Whoa. Does that, help you? Does that help you love the gospel today? God thought of us before the foundations of the world. He gives us as a love gift to the Son. The Son says, all that you give me, I will lose none of them. Well, I'm mad because he doesn't do this. <laughs> or somebody's mad because I drank this and they, oh man, all this fight for my liberty stuff. See, all that goes out the window real quick when you get to a text like this, doesn't it? Oh, Jesus, help me live for you. Life's short. I'm either going to die or you're going to come back. And eternity is eternity. Paul said in Colossians one twenty-five, he says, Oh, this church, excuse me, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefits so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. So Paul's saying, I was made a steward of this gospel. I'm called to preach, even if I didn't ask for it. Remember, Ananias is afraid of Paul, and he has him there. He's blind still after chapter 9, or in chapter 9 of Acts. And Ananias doesn't want anything to do with him. He's scared of him. That's how bad this man was. He was a bad dude. Ananias said, look, i Man, what would you send him to me for? Because you have no idea what I'm doing with this man. He's going to stand before kings and princesses and the Gentile world. And then, then God says this to Ananias, He will suffer many things for my name's sake. See, this is what gripped this man. Gripped him so he would preach. And there was no way he would boast in something that completely belongs to God. The church, his gospel, his people. 17, look at verse 17. I've got to hurry here. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if I, against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. See, it's important to understand that Paul saw his ministry um, at, not as something he worked for, but something that was given to him a stewardship. You have to understand this. He... He didn't know he was going to seminary in the desert for three years with Jesus. He was just going to Damascus to beat people up. That was the goal. So he, now he says, this is a ministry of stewardship. And, and, and brothers and sisters, I hope I get that across. We are all in that stewardship. If you're, if you're a member of this church, if this is your home church, if this is where you serve, we are stewards of this ministry of the gospel in the name and sake of Jesus Christ together. So well, Riverbend does church discipline over there. You bet we do. Because it's Jesus' church. And he says that we are to repent of our sin and turn from it and not let it build this unity within there. That's the that's kind of church we are. Because it's a stewardship, it's not ours. So in essence, this verse is saying that that he did not preach voluntarily because he did not choose to be in the ministry. He tried to destroy it. So now he's preaching the gospel, not voluntarily and not for just rewards, but his reward is doing the stewardship, taking care of what Christ did. So instead he preaches the gospel with an overwhelming sense of trust, it being entrusted to him and that's just amazing. Is one who sought to destroy it, now is entrusted with it. So you can see that Paul did not take this lightly. He was overwhelmed with the fact that God would give him this type of, this level of responsibility and carry it with such great value. I remember starting the ministry at Lake City Bible Church. There's so many times I was so over my head. I said, Lord, why did you choose some dumb cowboy? I can't read very well. I I can't sit in a chair very long. You got the wrong guy. I must have quit a thousand times that first year. I remember when I showed up here, I said that comment. I said, look, I'm way over my head. I think a third of the church left. But what I meant by that is I'm so dependent on the Lord We're going to try to do something that doesn't happen all the time. We're going to take a well-taught church, move it to eldership, build seminaries, be a presence around the world for the glory of Christ. We're going to try to do something like that. And I'm a cowboy from the middle of nowhere. That's what I meant by that. And I think that's a good place to be. We're about ready to launch a Bible school. And we're going to have a seminary. And we've got or pre-K, sorry pre-K teachers, um, pre-K through 12 here in We have discipleship for, no matter where you're at in the faith, there's somewhere where you can be encouraged and grow. We've been working on all of that steadfastly. And you go, Scott, how do you do this? I go, I don't know, man. We just love Christ. We love the word, and we just go, okay, Lord, here we go. (laughs) You said live by faith, not by sight. Here we go. Some of your marriages need that. You need to learn to live by faith and believe Jesus. Fourth thought, i got to hurry here. The joy of setting aside, because I've got to get Hayward up or I'm in a lot of trouble. Um, (laughs) The joy of setting aside our liberties for the glory of God and Savior and the good of the church. Look at verse 18. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So why is he doing this? What's the motivation of this man to preach this gospel? that constantly puts his his life in jeopardy? What's moving him? I think what Paul is clarifying here is the reality that that he has nothing to do with the gospel. It's the work of the Trinity. But he finds his reward in the precious gospel and giving it to an immature church, and he doesn't want to take a dime for it. One more illustration. Say somebody's in our church and they come and say, Scott, I really need to be a disciple. We go, okay, great. We got this guy. You're going to meet with him. Bring $10. The guy's going, am I buying lunch or what am I doing? You know, see, Paul, just didn't, I don't want to take a dime for this. I want you to know the person and glory of Jesus Christ. I'm willing to take you to lunch and spend time with you and buy your lunch. Just something simple as that because I love Jesus and I want you to know him and I don't want to talk about what you believe in. This is where he found his reward, right? The gospel was precious. So Paul had to preach it. He had to. Whoa. And he had to preach God's gospel, and there was no way around it. But he he didn't have to preach for sordid gain. He didn't have to preach so that he would have this monetary reward, and he could preach the glories of Christ alone. And Paul found great pleasure in that, that he could offer this beautiful message and never have to manipulate people. Alter calls and twisting of people's arms, and all of that has been done for so long, and not all of it's been in wrong motives, but a lot of it has. Our goal as elders is to help you know Jesus, love him more and walk with him. That's our goal. And if you're growing in the faith, give to the ministry so we can do that more with more people around this globe. That's what happens. Mature grace drives the maturity. Now, Paul, Paul's special contribution was that he found rejoicing in this. Notice he says, so, that I, so, so as not to make full use of my right of the gospel. See, Paul had every right to be supported by the Corinth church, but he chose not to exercise his right, and it thrilled him. He was thrilled in this case. Now, i got to close this out so we can sing a song. Let me make some application here if I've not made enough application away through this. Is this the attitude of every believer that is hearing the sermon in this room or online? Is this the attitude that we have that we're willing to set our liberties and our rights aside in order to see the gospel go forth and we'll love without limits in this church? Is that our goal? Yeah, everybody has to ask that personally. Myself included. Is that our goal? I think some restrict their liberties because this is not the motive of their heart. God, why is it? They have to send all the weak people to our church. i got to give up my things I love. That's wrong. That's wrong. Did you get that? I was pretending. God, send us the outcast. Send us those rejected by others because of their love for the truth. Send us mature and weak, those struggling with addictions. Send us with those who who own businesses. Send us us those people you're going to build this church and may we embrace them. And may we be willing to give up everything we need to reach them. Isn't that what God's calling us to do? See, Paul's testimony is this. I get to choose to not have my right so that these Corinthian churches, these Corinthian me, Christians would, would, would receive Christ, that I'm willing to work night and day for the sake of the gospel, and I'm willing to give up my extra time. And, and if he had a wife, she would say, I'm willing to give up my husband for the study of that. Um, and, and I'm sure Barnabas and the rest of them agreed with this and said, we'll do it, Paul. We'll live in tents to see God save people in Corinth. And this is because... Of there's a source behind this. There's a love for Christ, a love for the gospel. And so, are you excited this morning to remove a hindrance in your life? You have a hindrance? You want to win the world for Christ? I told you that when I came here six and a half years ago. I said, I want to win the world for Christ. That's what I want to do. I have any other agendas. That's what I want to do. And so are you willing to do that? We have to we have to die to self to do those things. So I promise you, if you if you will and you'll love people like this, you'll have the joy that Paul's experience. Jesus sat down with the disciples in John, excuse me, Mark nine, thirty five, and he sat, the Bible says, sitting down, he called the twelve to himself and he said this if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all, and listen to this, and a slave of all. Oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. That's a tough text. Look at verse 19. We'll start through this next week. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I will win more. He must have been listening. <laughs> I think Jesus repeated that to him. Or at least the Spirit of God did. It's exactly what the Lord says. So, four questions: Will you become a servant of all, a slave of all, if it meant someone coming to, the, to know the Jesus Christ? Slave, slaves don't have freedom. You know that about slaves, right? They don't have freedom. Are you willing to be a slave for Christ to see somebody come to Christ? Second, will you be a servant to those that God has called to this church? Today, we have people from California, Connecticut, and I think Romania in this building. Some of them are looking at our church to see if they're going to move their families here, be involved with us. I don't know how many other visitors, and if you're a visitor, go back there and meet Bobby and a bunch of people up back there and let us love on you after this, church, this service is over. But... But are you willing to say, I'm going to give up my seat, I'm going to hold babies, I'm going to teach Sunday school, I'm going to mop floor. I'm going to do whatever to see that God uses this church for his glory? Will your joy be in serving others and removing hindrances, not begrudgingly? I can hear the talk at Cracker Barrel. Well, I have to throw the wine out. I hope you don't come away with that <laughs> at all you would be surprised at the emails i receive send them to brian shealy at riverbend.com <laughs> will you be willing to give up your way see paul set all those liberties aside and his greatest joy was setting aside for the needs of jesus and others see that's love without limits Father in heaven, we thank you that we could study such a in-depth, challenging passage, Lord, and come away loving you, the gospel, the church, your glory more, Lord. And that's our intent. And so I pray, Lord, that myself, including with all my brothers and sisters and my fellow co-laborers, pastors and elders and deacons here, that we would live in such a way that that brings great glory to you and we would have the joy that Paul had to set aside these things for this little short time on this life that's soon going to come to an end and we live for Jesus so Lord we ask that you would motivate us strengthen us through your gospel Lord use your grace to motivate the mature in this room have them rise up help us be slaves to one another Care for people. Love people. See the gospel go around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.